I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is Jamie Berglund, the Executive Director of Spark, a community development organization. A conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast, we accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. Jamie Berglund is an award-winning change agent with nearly two decades of professional and volunteer experience focused on leading transformative community and economic development initiatives. Prior to her becoming executive director of Spark, that experience included leading Omaha by Design, and at the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce, helping establish the Omaha Municipal Land Bank and helping evolve regional transportation, neighborhood, and economic development plans. Jamie's nonprofit and volunteer work has included serving in the Peace Corps in Jordan. Jamie graduated from the University of Nebraska at Lincoln with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and a Master of Science in Urban Studies from the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start just a little broad. How would you define community? What is it? I think about it at least in a couple ways. There's a very place-based thought pattern around the neighborhood you live in, the people, buildings, structures, kind of day-to-day experiences you have in the space that you physically live in. And then I think about community from a people-based perspective. And so who you choose to surround yourself with, you know, they're, they're inclusive of those people within the space, but they're also, you know, family and friends and folks that, that live elsewhere. So um, from a community developer perspective, I also kind of turn that question back to you and to people that we work with and say, you know, how, how do you yourself define community? And that's, that's then the definition of community. So it's uh, different and evolving for everyone. Two things really stood out to me as you were describing community, and and they both feel really, really powerful to me. One is that aspect of community, which is about stuff. And it's like, you know, the, the, the bricks and mortar, the physical infrastructure, all those kind of things. But it's really heartening to me to hear you also say it's about the people that choose to make investments of themselves in a place and that you put that question back to the community what do you, the community, really think about this? I wonder if you are able to give us just a sense of um, maybe some context, some history about community development organizations. Is this a recent phenomena? Is this something we've been doing for a long time? What do they generally do? What do we have community development organizations for? So many community development structures exist because of federal programs that were initiated and pushed various types of funds to different municipalities across the country. So depending on how quickly a city was apt to want to receive those funds and kind of rally around the goals of those funds, directed a lot of whether or not various cities around the country built those community development structures. So you know, as far back as the Federal Housing Administration in the 1930s and 40s and the development of housing projects, um, public housing administration, you start seeing a lot of different structures coming to life. The ecosystem in Omaha is there. It's not as fully robust and developed as you may see in more um, coastal cities or urban, um, you know, much more urban areas, uh, older cities, larger cities, where, you know, for example, in Omaha, we have community development corporations, so CDC is what they're often referred to. Um, we have a small handful, whereas in other cities of our size, maybe in Rust Belt communities or on the coast, you're going to see 20 and 30 CDCs. 
We have community development financial institutions, CDFIs. They're financing entities, much like a bank, that uh, are willing to take on a bit more risk and provide a much more deeper level of technical assistance uh, with the financing needs of small businesses and, and, develop, and real estate development projects and, and personal lending needs. Again, we have some, but uh, not as many as you see in other communities. So all sorts of different structures out there, um, different models. You know, Omaha's history of being very private sector led and driven since the inception of the city of Omaha in the 1850s also means, I think, you know, from my perspective and what I can understand, a lot of the development in our community was also driven in that way. A lot of community development was driven in that way. So where you had other cities across the country starting to put these structures together because these federal funds were coming, we weren't necessarily accepting those funds or utilizing those funds in that way. You know, urban renewal happened in Omaha, but it didn't happen because we accepted large amounts of federal urban renewal dollars. It happened because, you know, state and local leaders decided to do their own various versions of urban renewal and then eventually did accept various federal forms of funding, for example, the highway system and things like that. Um, right now, the ecosystem is strong, but still small. And so when we, we came to light uh, just a small handful of, year, of years ago, it was because we saw an opportunity to continue to fill some gaps. So we saw financing for real estate development as being a challenge in the community and also the capacity building and support needed to um, really lift up the vision and desires of neighborhood residents and, and community members and their goals around re real estate development and development in their own communities. Some of that's been happening from with the outside coming in. Uh, and so our vision has been more about supporting the assets that already exist within the community, building capacity, providing access to resources to build that up. From the outside, as it were, it seems quite complex. And uh, I, I don't know if that's a function of bureaucracy, um, the complicated tools that are used, the methods and sources of financing. You've already mentioned you've been really good at stating the acronym and explaining what it is, but, but it feels like this is a world where there's lots and lots of acronyms <laughs> that describe all sorts of complicated things. And also one of there's a lack of public, which probably means my own personal um, understanding of what these things do. And I wonder if these are some of the challenges you face, if, it, if, if this really is as complex as it seems and as sort of abstract and opaque as it yeah. appears. Well, I think the acronyms were put in place to try to simplify stuff, stuff that's complicated, but then in, by implementing those acronyms, you end up complicating things. I, I really do think it's rather straightforward. You know, you've got community demand for housing, for commercial development, for uh, investment in neighborhoods, you know, from a, a physical built environment, economic development perspective. And you have a supply and if th there's a mismatch between the demand and the supply. So there's uh, the supply in our community is looking to develop in areas where they can get a better return on their investment. And so while there is a demand in many of our disinvested neighborhoods for better quality housing, the resources to be able to support that are, are slim. And so now you've got to figure out a way to make that puzzle work. So you know, who are the right developers to bring to the table to, to meet the demand or to create a supply that is going to be a, a mix, provide a mix of incomes, provide a mix of uses? Um, what are the financing mechanisms to make that happen? So it's not just as simple as going to the bank and getting a loan and, and, that, and the deal's done because the bank's only going to loan you so much based on the value of the project or based on how much debt you can repay. So then now you got to go find other sources. So now you look for things like tax increment financing, which is a big conversation in our community. That's a source of, of financing for a project. You look for tax credits as a way to help finance projects. You, you start layering on all these different resources to make it happen. Now, yeah, I mean, the economics of that can feel overwhelming, but if you kind of just take it one step at a time, one bite at a time, it's not it doesn't need to be as complicated as I think, or as intimidating. And I think maybe that's what it is, is it can feel really intimidating, but once you kind of roll up your sleeves, you can remove some of the layers of complication. But part of that is building your knowledge and building your access to relationships and resources to help you understand. Come on.
certified sunshine We got it on lock Loving you forever, ever until I forgot I said I need less talk A little more space And need to know my feelings But my words get in the way I never really think straight And you walked away I ain't good at noticing I know I gotta change I heard you're back in town You're coming around I know I did be free But I'll never let you down I see you looking my way I felt the wind change We can try again and make it summer every day I know you've been down I'm still the one in your heart You've started to suggest there were some gaps in the Omaha market. There was a need perhaps to not be overly reliant as we have been on sort of private markets and to use a more holistic social and communal approach to this. So what was it that was happening in your uh, observation that made you think, oh, we we need to establish something like Spark and and this is how I'm going to go about doing it? Well, at that time, I had been involved with many redevelopment initiatives focusing on East Omaha. So in Midtown, North Omaha, and South Omaha, we had uh, master plans that were guiding our work, team members that were focusing on infrastructure improvement, neighborhood engagement, economic development. And that work at that time was largely based out of the chamber. So uh, that was in partnership with public and private organizations across the community, but it was rooted in the chamber. And while the chamber is a great convening and coordinating partner, when it comes to getting up every day and getting the work done in community development, it it wasn't the right fit. So we started looking at uh, the local ecosystem, like I talked about at the beginning, just say, okay, you know, who within this, this existing ecosystem could be a fit for really driving some more of this holistic community development. And I should take a step back to say, it it wasn't just about supporting the built environment needs. Like we know that there are resources out there to do that. They're being implemented on a daily basis. This was really to say, when you're working in a community, working in a neighborhood, it's more than the built environment. There's education and workforce and health and wellness and social and cultural aspects that are just as important as that built uh, environment is. And those partners and those leaders also need to be brought to the table. And it's also, it's not just housing, it's commercial development, it's mixed use development, it's, you know, industrial development, workforce, you know, opportunities for workforce development there. So as we were kind of identifying this, you know, much more holistic need and an opportunity in our conversations with the local nonprofit community, we identified that while there are many capable and strong organizations, they really wanted to stay focused on their geography, their mission, their product, their specific purpose. They saw the value in the larger holistic need, but didn't at that time feel it was the right fit for them to expand into these other areas. We started looking at models across the country because you know we know we're not the first to the table on this and i think that's one thing that i will say is has frustrated me about omaha kind of in general and that you know i love this city in so many ways that i've lived here most of my life i see so much opportunity and so much entrepreneurship but one thing that that frustrates me a bit is that you know we we do have this conversation that we're kind of the last to the table on a lot of things but yet I think the way we think of ourselves as being very entrepreneurial and these this kind of rugged individualism that, that created who this, you know, what we are as a city right now. And sometimes that, that just doesn't mesh. I, I don't, I hear those words coming out, but I don't see the actions that prove that. And, and even just in the startup of Spark, I ran into a lot of that. And then when I talked to other folks that have been a part of startup ventures, there is this disconnect between how we think we are and how we behave about being, you know, risk takers and, and willing to, to, to jump into the unknown. But the reality is we're very conservative and trepidatious and we want to see it tested and tested and studied and studied and, and then tested again. And then maybe we'll take a, a pilot project approach because we can't then fully, you know, jump into it. So kind of having this awareness around us is like, okay, but we need to take this 
process, we need to take these steps to, to get to our end goal. So our end goal being, we know we need more holistic quality community led development in the neighborhoods where disinvestment has taken place for decades. How we get there, what structure it is, who runs it, how it's on, there's no pride in authorship or ownership in any of it. We just know that this is the end goal. So that's why we took this path of, you know, who can do this? How can it be done? Where can it be done? Who's willing to partner together? We then, as I shared, started then looking at these national models to understand what, what more capacity in other communities looks like. And we saw, a, you know, fantastic examples all over the community or all over the country. Um, and, and finally kind of settled upon this intermediary model. So there are major national intermediaries like LISC, uh, Local Initiative Support Corporation, Enterprise. Um, there's also community like neighborhood-based or city-based intermediaries. Um, Family Housing uh, Fund in Minneapolis was one of them. There's Memphis Lift was another one. We just started looking at these different models and thinking, okay, well, how does this, how could this work in Omaha? And knowing that we wanted to have this coordinating and convening role, we wanted projects to happen, we knew financing was a piece of it, and that that holistic community-led perspective was at the center. So not necessarily going into a neighborhood and saying, we're a housing organization, we're going to make housing happening here, happen here, but rather we're invited into a community because they have an interest in wanting to partner with us. And they have said, we wanna move forward with a public park, or we think it's really important to focus on education and outcomes for our, our neighborhood folks. And then using that as the starting point and, and letting that evolve based on the needs and goals of the community versus the products or resources that we specifically provide. So we kind of toyed around with the idea of bringing one of those national intermediaries here. Uh, I think that is still potentially on the table. We're still in conversations with some of them around what that could look like because the capacity and resources they bring are phenomenal. We decided um, to move forward with creating our own localized version, uh, much in the Omaha way, let's do it ourselves. <laughs> but also through the advice of uh, some of the people that we knew we would need to have on board in order to be able to make it successful. So we, we largely engaged investors from both philanthropy and, and the financial institutions. We also had some attorneys on board because you always need a good attorney <laughs> to give some advice. Uh, we had some real estate developers uh, part participate because they had some hands-on experience to understand where some of the challenges and opportunities were. And then just received consulting along the way from different national associations um, and resources. Uh, we put Spark together in partnership with a handful of community leaders. They helped advise on the structure and the model. And, and at the end of the day, we are a piece of a bigger puzzle needed to address many of these issues in the community. sounds to me as if Spark's goal and its activities are geared around creating infrastructure that is, you know, great, and also a quality of life in a community that also feels great to the people that live there. And I wonder if that's accurate. And if it is, how do you go about, um, and maybe you can provide an illustration of how you go about helping a, a, a community 
move from disinvestment to thriving in those place and people areas? Any of us who participate in the planning process or, or you know, read one of the METI neighborhood or district plans that have been put out there know that there's no shortage of ideas for how to improve the physical space of a community. But all that starts with the people that live there, work there, have roots there, you know, have a sense of ownership there. You know, we're really fortunate as an organization to have team members with great relationships in the community. Uh, we have board members, volunteers, advisors that we lean on uh, to give us insight on who to connect with, how to connect with them, when to connect with them. It's a very uh, nuanced and person by person strategy. It's not a, you know, the one size fits all component of this is you have to engage the community. How you do that and, and the, the details of the process are, are, there's no replication model that we put in place anywhere. Part of it is you also kind of just have to feel it out. So then having people on our team and advisors and board members that are really sensitive to that is a really important piece of our, our structure. I think when we, when we do our work, um, it's driven by, it, so, so it's rooted to a degree in the plans that have already been created. There's been a lot of input in our community. There's a bit of fatigue in our community around giving input to plans without seeing action and results. So we don't start from scratch and that we look to those plans to give us guidance, but we, in our conversations, affirm what we see. So is this something that is still desired? Who else isn't voiced in this plan? Who else do we need to engage to get that input on? Which can really you know, prolong your process, right? Which is maybe not a, uh, you know, in the world of real estate development, not the thing that you wanna do, time is money and so you need to get cracking. So you really have to be pretty for, you have to have a lot of foresight and, and thoughtful ahead of time as to how long uh, in advance you want to be starting to have some of this engagement and be willing to put things on pause if there's challenges or problems that arise so that you can address, listen, you know, and, and address is not the right word. It's really listen. I think most of what we do is listen and ask questions. Uh, it's not like we're in a place to fix a lot of things other than to try to just act upon our mission, but there's larger public forces at play that, we don't necessarily have control over, but what we can do is listen and then provide access, um, which is, I think, another great thing. In general, I find Omaha, everybody's like about a degree or two of separation. Folks can pick up the phone and call somebody and cold call them and most people will talk to you, uh, is at least the perception. If you don't feel that's the case for yourself, what we've been able to do for many folks that didn't feel that was their reality was make that connection. And so then now we're no longer the gatekeeper or the the, the go-between, they've already got that direct connection there. And so that, that's another piece of this engaging and listening and is just building those bridges and networks and that social capital, the bonding and bridging social capital that needs to happen to make a project happen. So community engagement through those master plans, through the one-on-one -on -one outreach, you know, at any time we embark upon a project, there's always other partners at the table. They also bring their own constituents and networks. And so we get to know them. I think a good illustration is a project that we're hopefully gonna have constructed yet here this summer and that's uh, in Brown Park in South Omaha. We came into that partnership after leaders in the community uh, with the Heartland Workers Center and the Omaha Community Foundation had been engaging with neighbor residents, neighborhood residents around their, their vision for their own neighborhood. Uh, Heartland Workers Center had been doing some canvassing uh, to understand community needs and encouraging civic engagement and voting and, and leadership development. And a whole host of issues came up in those outreach conversations. One of them was the park. And that was one that folks just kept coming back to over and over. We really wanna see a park invested in. So as they embarked on what that would look like, they reached out to us to assist with kind of the overall coordination and structuring and communications and planning and fundraising and engaging with the city. So we brought that level of expertise. They brought the community piece, which then also became relationships we were able to capitalize on. We helped them engage with the city. Now the neighborhood residents have direct contacts with the city. Same with the fundraiser or the funders. We did, you know, help facilitate and lead the funding, but everybody worked in partnership. And then now everybody has access to those funders and there's not that um, intimidation factor that comes with engaging with the donors. So, you know, and, and, I, and you know, here's just an example. And I've said this before that, you know, my heart and soul is often in housing. I think housing is like a foundational, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You need shelter to be able to function in so many ways. 
And so if I were to go into any neighborhood, I'm my eyes towards homes and housing and how that is functioning in a community. But in this neighborhood, they really wanted to start with the park. And that has been so vital for our relationship building, our trust building, identifying leaders and, you know, public space. What else, what's more of a, of a, a common rallying cry to bring folks around um, a space that everybody can access that's, that's free and usable by different ages and abilities and demographics. And so uh, it's really been a great way to start our work in that community. And I say start because when we make an investment of time or energy or resources, we want to be there for a while. We know that this community development stuff doesn't happen overnight. Uh, the challenges didn't happen uh, overnight. And so to address the challenges, but then to also help continue to lift up those assets it may not be within my lifetime <laughs> that I see the fruits of, 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 of our labor, but that's, that's just part of the commitment you make, so. Trust building takes time, and it would feel to me as if trust is a really integral part of this. You mentioned earlier, sort of, you don't want to appear like the outside coming in. Neighborhood investment really needs to emerge as a desire from the inside out. I'm just curious about the barriers and, and the pushback you might face. So, for example, questions like, whose interests are you serving? Is, is it the developers and the banks, or, or is it you know, the, the neighbors? What about complaints about gentrification, for example. So I'm just curious about the kinds of resistance you face. Even as we're talking now, I understand the good intentions behind the work. Yeah. Well, you know, fortunately, and maybe it's also like a Pollyanna way that I look at the world is that we have not had resistance in the way that maybe folks would expect with how development happens in a community. And I think it's because We've really started with those relationships and we're, we're not driving a vision. We are facilitating and supporting the vision of the community. So, you know, Brown Park is an example. That is, that's the community's vision. Now, if we would have gone in and started with housing, like I kind of talked about, that could be perceived and the reality would be that, well, wait a second, who's, whose goals are being achieved here? Whose interests are being met here? What the flip side of that is, is then while we're very focused on what the community is wanting and trying to support that, we also have to engage with and mitigate the concerns and, and goals of donors, of investors, of public officials, of others that are you know, influential and are part of this ecosystem too. So sometimes what we may actually more find ourselves doing is explaining and helping under, helping um, people maybe in, in a different piece of this puzzle understand the goals and wishes of the community and why we're doing what we're doing and how we're doing it versus maybe a different, more um, either capitalist driven or <laughs> traditionally driven kind of, of way, um, traditionally being kind of that top down. You know, I think we also, we, we you know, as a community and just as, as a people get really used to the language like grassroots led, grassroots, well, what does that really mean? And how do you then truly let go of control of a vision? Because it's not your vision A to begin with. I mean, if you're really there about community development, you're supporting the goals of the, those living in the community. And so that vision has to be driven there. So then kind of going on to your question or comment around gentrification, you know, that is a tough one. There are so many definitions around what gentrification is and isn't, where it's happening, is it happening, to whom is it happening? And I think just as many people as there are, as many definitions, as many definitions as there are of what gentrification is. You can see in other more urbanized communities, very swift changes happening. And much of that can be defined, I think, as gentrification. I think one of the ways that we also utilize or the way we define it or think about it is not only is there, you know, sharp changes in property values and income levels, but there's a displacement of people and culture. 
that, that coincides with that. And so what is that culture? Who are those people? How were they engaged in this change or were they not at all? Were they completely disregarded? And so as ways to try to preempt that, because we see that as a trend that just, it almost feels like this inevitable force that's gonna happen. Well, first, first question is, does it have to happen? And do we have any examples anywhere where it hasn't happened? And so far, it's been really a struggle to try to find communities where it hasn't happened. But areas that have been able to at least start to address it have different just models around wealth building. For example, we launched a developer academy last fall. And the academy is about building the knowledge, resources, access to capital of small and emerging developers in our community with a priority focus on people that identify as women and BIPOC. And then we also partner with our nonprofit and public sector partners to help provide capacity building because we think it's important that they're um, well uh, suited to do their work and, and have the resources and support they need. When, when we shift away from saying, you know, any development anywhere is good and say, no, really, who's developing, how they're developing, who's building the wealth, where the vision is coming from, uh, that is really kind of the tone that we're coming at, at it with. We also just wrapped up an analysis on a community investment trust model. So a CIT is a model that allows neighborhood residents in areas where economic changes are <laughs> afoot to be able to benefit in the property value increases that are happening. So you have a commercial structure as an example that has tenants in it and the shares of that building then can be sold to residents within certain zip codes that you deem as, as appropriate. Uh, they're usually low and moderate income individuals that can then purchase shares at very affordable prices, 10 to $100 a share. And then as those shares, as the building increases in value, the dividends from that go to those shareholders. So a very um, modest increase over time, but it's a very secure way to be able to raise or to be able to earn additional wealth in a community, especially with residents who probably don't have the ability to invest in things like the stock market or uh, you know, other investment models or structures. And, and the way this particular model is structured is that there's no loss. So you, you get a letter of credit from a bank to, to guarantee that uh, investment so that they don't have a loss. So it's really a great way to, to start helping share the, the, the change, share the, the wealth building that happens when a community is going through change and gentrification, as you say. communities perhaps have some reluctance or or resentment of being labeled disinvested and i wonder if omaha itself doesn't like the idea that um, we need an entity like this because it somehow demonstrates that we we're not flourishing as a city yeah. as maybe we'd like to say that we are yeah it doesn't uh, mesh with our nebraska nice like wait a second <laughs> yeah uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, no, who wants to be labeled disinvested? Who wants to have their neighborhood be thought of that way or, or they themselves view themselves that way? Yeah, the, the different labels that are historically used, currently used, I think it's continually evolving to try to find language that feels appropriate. Um, and yeah, it can be offensive, but maybe that's what it's supposed to be is we've been to Nebraska nice, we've been to soft around the edges about how we want to describe the true, true disinvestment. I mean, historically, we, we, I say we all know this, but I think it's clear that we all don't know this, because otherwise, we would likely be doing more about it. The historic redlining that has created generations of disproportionate 
wealth, uh, lack of wealth and wealth building in our community. We do need to call that what that is and we need to then address it. I think if we don't come up with, if we don't use language that is clear, then I think we run the risk of continuing to dance around it. And I definitely think, you know, <laughs> as a booster for the city and for the community and to try to promote all that's positive and great, um, we also as an organization focus on things from an asset-based community development perspective. So when we're in a community, it's about, you've got, you know, the, the leadership is strong, the roots are strong, the culture's like, there's all the strengths, right? But those strengths are coming together often to address a problem. So yes, let's value those strengths, let's support the strengths and let's rally and support them together to address the problem that they've identified in their own community. And so I think going back to, you know, do we wanna talk about our city as being disinvested or parts of our city being disinvested? Yeah, on, a five, on the five o'clock news and the, the soundbite and the snippet that happens that we see um, on, on the evening news, that seems to be something that um, we're okay to watch then and then to further kind of demonize those different parts of our city uh, based on the stereotypes we might have or, or experiences. But yeah, I, I guess I would say that we don't, we, if, if we were more serious about really calling what it, it is and then really being willing to address it, um, we, we may not have some of the challenges that we have. the things I think about is, um, you know, I reflect back on myself as a child that grew up in kind of the near South area downtown. And I loved like neighborhoods and urban community. I just thought they were so interesting. And I love being close to this, the city, as we would say, and, you know, we'd get up and walk down at the time it was called the Central Park Mall. That was like our, you know, free family entertainment to walk down over the 10th Street Bridge and walk downtown. And I just thought the inner workings of a city were so fascinating. And as I got older, I recognized, and I recognize now, there are hundreds of thousands of kids in our community that, that have the same feelings and desires and goals and visions for their own neighborhoods and their own communities you know, first of all, shame on us if we don't find a way to support and empower them to be the next generation of leaders to address, you know, to, to seize the opportunities and address the challenges that they want to see. But even before that, like, I think there's a collective belief sometimes that there aren't a lot of, there's not a lot of value or worth in the community members that are living in these neighborhoods. And that to me is, is really core to this problem in that how could you not have an idea or a vision for how your community could improve when you wake up and live in it in every day? That, that is the real key to this is empowering the voices of members of the community that are experiencing their, the existence of their community on a daily basis. There's a lot of strength in that and there's a lot of value in that. And it's also like letting go of control of what that outsider insider view needs to be like, oh, this is what I think we should do to that part of the city. It's also, I think about like how, how we kind of approach all different kinds of programs. So like, here's your SNAP benefits. Here's your uh, childcare benefits. Here's your housing benefits. We don't, we as a collective community and we have people in power don't think that people with lower incomes have the ability to make their own choices as to how to spend their money. So instead of just saying, we trust you to have the best ideas and vision for how you want to raise your family, live in your neighborhood, raise your, you know, be, be a leader in your community. We're going to prescribe to you how you need to spend your money, where you need to live, with whom you can live, you know, <laughs> And, and so I think it's just pervasive in so many different areas of our community, this mentality of what has value, what has knowledge and, and what doesn't. And in our, you know, small, but hopefully impactful way, we're, we're trying to, to change a lot of that and, you know, put different voices in the, in the, the spotlight. Yeah. I'm really pleased you shared a little bit about your childhood experiences, because I, I wanted to ask you, what was your sense of community when you were growing up? And what was that epiphany that made you realize that you cared enough about community 
or the the the, the idea of community that you wanted to make that your vocation. The the community that I lived for the first part of my life was a very close knit community. It had uh, you know family generations years back. It was a little Italy part of town. So uh, just, you know, family living close by, uh, there were many new immigrants also at the time that I lived in that neighborhood moving into the community from Mexico and other uh, areas south of the United States. So just that sense of family and connection and close roots was a very much a part of the kind of community I grew up in. I also went to a Catholic grade school and that sense of you know, I think everybody in Omaha is at least my experience at that time. It's like everybody's Catholic in this city, but no, not everybody is Catholic in this. There's a lot of Catholics, but that just the, the culture around Catholicism in that community too was part of my sense of what community was. And then we moved to Papillion when I was in middle school and high school. So that was a very different sense of community. There was a lot of military families. And so their roots were not as deep. Um, they, you know, moved in, moved out, they brought culture and community from other parts of the country with them. Uh, it wasn't as racially diverse. Um, it was much bigger, uh, and also much wealthier. And so that was, you know, my experience growing up, I was on free lunch and the oldest of six kids. And we, um, you know, lived very modest means. Uh, and then we moved to Papillion and I was on reduced lunch and oldest of six kids with very modest means in a, in a community that was uh, much more well off, I think, than the one that I had grown, grown up in. And so I just, you know, my sense of, of community, I was always drawn back to the city. I was always drawn back to the neighborhood that I'd, I'd first grown up in. And so I feel like I kind of hit an epiphany around wanting to do this kind of work actually when um, later in my life, I, you know, my first careers out of college were working with people that did not have homes. Uh, they were struggling to make ends meet, um, find housing, find food, just, you know, how that impacts a person's life. Um, you know, having had some exposure to that growing up, but then also just my professional career uh, it, starting out in that in that space was really important. I think the, the thing that really clicked for me though is I worked for the Nebraska AIDS Project doing the, the prevention and education work. I did a lot of street outreach. I worked in a lot of uh, places in our community that can feel intimidating to folks that maybe don't frequent them on a daily basis. So um, homeless shelters and drug treatment facilities and, and just the streets and people that were um, and sex trafficking and sex trade. And so uh, I found their lives and their worlds, you know, heartbreaking in some sense, but also fascinating in their resilience and how determined many people are in the face of so many obstacles to overcome um, their, their challenges. Uh, that, and that really married kind of this place-based background of, of feeling rooted in a neighborhood and just how cool people are. <laughs> Um, together to say like I love this community development stuff and so it, it continued to grow from there. One door opens while another one closes That's how it always goes One heart's breaking while another one is mending it's all in the ebb and flow If I had to, I could go it alone But I don't ever need to Because I have a home Somewhere to run to I could live alone in the woods Not a single sound But I would never feel alone Because you've become my You referenced community members looking to themselves and others as both examples of and inspiration to be leaders. 
So I want to turn that on you to a degree and, and ask who is it in you know your few decades of life that you've looked at and thought, oh, this is a leader that's inspiring me and, and what you learn from that person. Uh, I think about going back to my time at the Nebraska AIDS Project, there were a few folks that I worked with some of the prevention and education programs that were, um, you know, again, dealing with some pretty difficult circumstances and just watching them overcome those circumstances was really inspiring to me. Uh, from a from a my family perspective, my mom, as you know, so my mom is an incredible woman who has given me a sense of, you know, anything is possible. You know, you can do, you can be and do anything you want. <laughs> and then I was like hitting in my forties, and I was like, oh wow, that is a really valuable gift to give someone because the reality is that no, we all can't be and do whatever we want. But when you believe that or have that belief, it makes it a lot easier to step into some of these really scary places. And, and what a great gift that was that she gave me and my siblings and I'm, I'm hoping to, that I'm able to give to my kids and to others that I'm around. Uh, she just was a really, she's a hardworking, wonderful, kind person. And I think um, my sense of like social justice and what is right is, was learned from her. Um, there was of course teachers, you know, I had college professors that were fantastic. I was fortunate to go to college. I got a full ride scholarship that I wasn't anticipating and it really changed the trajectory of my life. So that um, those professors were really an influential and incredible in my life, both in my undergraduate. And then I was able to get another scholarship for our master's program. And so some of the professors up at UNO have been really fantastic. Um, had some great bosses. I just, you know, I've just really been really lucky. One boss in particular, or one manager in particular, Wendy Boyer, she was my manager at the chamber for five years and really taught me how to lead others and how to develop others, which, you know, pretty uh, candidly, you know, my first part of my career was like trying to build myself and figure out what the hell I was doing. Uh, and then when I got to that point in my career where I realized that it was also about developing others. I really came into that because of her and, and just a lot that I learned um, about helping and supporting others through her. I know you've also done some futurist training and you mentioned the word foresight earlier. I feel like I've read somewhere that you talked about futurism, the study of futurism, going to futurist camp, marked a real inflection for you. And, and before, before I get to what you see ahead, what was that inflection? What was it about that that really maybe was pivotal for you? Well, yeah. So Rebecca Ryan, futurist, she would be another one of those leaders that I've learned a lot from um, and have been fortunate to call a friend. Uh, I mean, her energy and just that any that again, that 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 feeling that anything's possible if you really, you know, work and put resources towards it. Um, I feel like I had probably always thought in that way. I always start with the future in mind and work myself back. But that model of futurism and, and strategic foresight gave me a different framework to think through it with. And so uh, when we do planning and visioning as a team, as an organization, the work that we do in the neighborhood, we do that, you know, what, what's the, what is the, the ideal future we're trying to envision at the end of the day? And how do we you know, work ourselves back and block and tackle through all the obstacles that are going to come our way to get there um, and bring resources around and just and be, you know, kind of reading the tea leaves for what, what could, could throw a wrench in things or hopefully could pre present an opportunity for things. Um, when I think about, you know, the future, you know, maybe just specifically within community development, I am, again, so blown away by the talent and strengths of the generation that's coming up in this space to take things on in such a different way to not accept excuses as things that are just static, but that that may be an opinion of someone or a problem of, of someone's, but it's not the fact, it's not the truth that we have to, to live with. And, and let's approach things from a different way. Let's think about ownership in a different way. Let's think about leadership in a different way. Uh, so I'm really excited about a future that is just really going to flip this model, continue to flip this model of how we invest in and support our communities in a completely different way and, and probably a bit more egalitarian um, and just voices that have not been in a leadership role really running the show. So again, let me make it more personal for you using strategic foresight. What is your future? Oh, what is my future? Um, 
I love starting things. I've had the fortunate uh, role of being able to help start a lot of stuff in, in organizations, structures, projects, strategies. I see a future where I get to do more of that, maybe not necessarily own it and run it forever, but be a partner in helping someone else take their vision and support it and start it. I'm really excited for just more diverse leadership to come into our community. And I would be tickled to get to support and work for them. Uh, you know, leading something on your own is, is a lot of work. <laughs> Not that I do this on my own. I have a great network of board members and partners and supporters, but I also get excited about thinking who that next, you know, who the next leaders are and how I can support, support them. You only have one life. So who knows, I might take a, a 90 degree turn or 180 degree turn and do something different altogether. I do love all things related to neighborhoods and homes. And so, you know, very well could be in that space, but maybe just a little bit different than what I'm doing now. My guest today has been Jamie Berglund, the Executive Director of the Community Development Organization, Spark. Jamie, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me on this. I'm so excited to be asked and I'm so excited to listen. So thank you. Should I just do this? Uh, Let me see what happens if I do this. (laughs) That's going to be horrible. (laughs) Support for this show comes from the Greater Omaha Chamber of Commerce. We don't coast. We accomplish more together. Details at omahachamber.org. the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at livesradioshow. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Live's Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more.